0: This episode is sponsored by Factor Meals, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. Hey, it's time for a Nakedly Examined Music reissue. Originally posted on April 17th, 2017, this interview with Glenn Mercer of Feelys was a high point, and I want to share it with you again, as the Feelys have just released a new album, Some Kind of Love. Hope you enjoy Glenn at the very end of the interview. I'll say some more new things and insert a song, Who Loves the Sun, from that new album, which is a live set by the Feelys of Velvet Underground Songs. So we get to hear Glenn sing one of my favorite, I think, underrated VU tunes. Here's the interview.
1: You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. For more information about this podcast, please see NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. My guest for episode 41 is Glenn Mercer, best known for his work with The Feelies, a New Jersey band that put out four albums between 1980 and 1991. You're right now listening to The Feelies' The High Road, the opening track from 1986's The Good Earth. They're a big influence on bands like R.E.M. Glenn was the guitarist, singer, main songwriter for that. In the 90s, he put out three albums with a band called Wake Ulu, released a solo album in 2007, which served as the ramp up to getting The Feelies back together in 2011 we will be talking about Been Replaced and Gone, Gone, Gone from the new album 2017's In Between. We'll then talk about his 2015 solo album Incidental Hum and you'll hear the song Laramie. And we'll wrap up by looking back to the 2011 album here before the song It Should Be Gone. For more information please check out thefeelysweb.com
0: so I will have played, during my opening spiel, the intro to The High Road from The Good Earth, 1986. The first song we're going to play in full here is from the the recent album, 2017's In Between. Do you want to say a little bit about the bridge between those two, the many years?
2: Between The High Road and the new record?
0: Yeah, in other words, you established The High Road, even though that's that, your second that's, album. So I right could out. go anywhere with that. I mean, <laughs> well, I, I know you, you basically established your sound on that record and the lineup that is still persists today. And, you know, you recorded a few albums at the time, up to 91, and then took a long break. And But I heard this is the first, the new album is the first one that, am I right, that you came in with all the songs yourself? You didn't co-write them all with Bill? Is that right? No, they're uh, co-writes. Oh, okay.
2: There's more co-writes, percentage-wise, on this record than in a while.
0: So I thought I'd heard you describe Maybe it was one of the other guys. I listened to a, another podcast by a friend of mine, the one that you guys did, about the Good Earth album with the Jughead's Basement podcast where he actually interviewed all of you about the Good Earth in turn. So I'm kind of not remembering who said what on that album, but one of you had described, the band is kind of like some people get together and play poker, we get together and do music. Does that sound familiar?
2: It sounds familiar. Um, it might have been Dave who said that. I mean, that's not totally accurate, obviously, we put a lot of work into it. The social aspect is a big part of it, but you know, a lot of it is the uh, expression of creativity and connection with other people, with the audience, so we don't want to make it sound too casual, either.
0: So how does that work, though, with Bill still lives in Florida, or did he move back?
2: Yeah, Bill is still in Florida.
0: Okay, so how does that work with co-writing now? You just do that when you get together, or?
2: No, we exchange through the mail, the CDs through the mail.
0: Ah, the actual mail, okay. Let's introduce, let's get to the first song pretty quickly here, Been Replaced. Tell me a, a little about what this is about and how this one came about.
2: Well, I had the music just very spontaneously, I guess, came up with the line, the radio on. And then in turn, that sort of sparked you know, an idea about what's going on with radio. I don't know. It's it meant to be tongue-in-cheek, to be honest. It's kind of, I find it a little ironic and a little funny. I think it's worth noting that within a few days of Writing the lyrics, I'd heard on the local radio, Egyptian Reggae by Jonathan Richmond, a Modern Lover. So yeah. I kind of had to eat my words. Like I didn't mean it, you know, just kind of joking here. Obviously, there's good stuff on the radio, but I guess just sort of reflecting back to uh, a period that's no longer there.
0: All right. Well, so if you had the basic riff here, how was this a co write? How did this evolve?
2: That's not a co write. That's one uh, I wrote. Okay. the this...
0: So yeah, what you're saying about the tongue and cheek—I mean, there are several places on this album. The whole thing is, for the most part, very relaxed. But just starting off with a yeah, 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 like these rock gestures, like you've got on uh, "Flag Days." Another one on here that "Hey now, hey now, come on, baby," like lyrics that would normally be, you know, in a 1970s hyperactive rock song. But here they are at about half the speed, just kind of yeah. <laughs> I like that twist on the classic rock cliche well it's just
2: spontaneous you know just sing whatever pops into your head sometimes you'll change it sometimes something will just stick in your head you can't really get rid of it it just seemed to fit it wasn't intentional to evoke any particular anything really
0: well so how about the arrangement here on been replaced i mean i definitely notice we're gonna for our third song talk about one of the songs from incidental home your solo album which i believe was the first one that you did all the instruments yourself right yeah okay so, a lot of the gestures on that, in terms of let's put a recorder here, let's put two layers of Ebo, I'm hearing more on the new record than I was on previous things. Is that, are you still basically playing this live as a group? I
2: think you hit on something that's worth talking about, which is I'm just personally speaking here, but when approaching the writing of the new songs, I did feel inspired by the instrumental record in that it wasn't performance oriented we found that with the last record we had 13 songs and five records out at that point and we had plenty of songs to pick from when we play live even when we play 3 hours we still have to leave stuff out and the last record we also there are some songs on that that we've never performed live so the idea was well we don't necessarily have to perform these songs we can kind of go off in any way we want try to be a little more experimental about it and try to create different moods and have each song like you know evoke a certain atmosphere and just try to capture a variety of vibes keep a coherent aspect to it but also to be able to go in different directions
0: so was the idea that you just figure out when you're done with the records you know how, how things are coming out in terms of what's going to actually work as a live thing and which is just going to stay a studio gem
2: i mean we could play any of the songs live. We recorded them basically all performing live, but some are more suited for live than others, I guess.
0: I know it's often the case that the ones that are especially ballady, not that you have many super ballads, but like I noticed When to Go, the song right before this, is just a really nice, quiet one. Is that the kind of thing that you'd be less likely to do live than one of these more catchy ones?
2: Yeah, probably. That's got a lot of stuff going on, um, layers, and it's got keyboard so but you know we won't really know until we start kind of going through them and trying different things and hoping to do some acoustic shows as well so that might open the door to a different possibility for us
0: so on been replaced when you've got something like this the recorder is an interesting little layering bit here because it sounds like a recorder that you might add yourself to a solo tune you know i do the same thing i play a lot of instruments against myself and i'm just like okay i want i want an extra texture there so i'll get something that just makes a noise i don't necessarily have to know how to play it particularly like the person playing recorder here does not sound like a skilled experienced recorder player but it's a really cool effect
2: when i first started uh messing around the recorder the idea was to uh I noticed it had sonic similarities to feedback. It's pretty hard in a studio situation to get any kind of semi-controlled feedback uh, from a guitar. So the idea was to kind of add certain frequencies that might suggest that. So I guess when that part comes in, it's not recreating that, but it's sort of suggesting it, I think.
0: Well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it kind of goes with some of the other, uh, we're going to hear more on Gone, Gone, Gone than this on the second song, how you have these kind of wall of noise distortion things, but they sit very comfortably next to an acoustic guitar. Like they're not any louder. It's just so it's like, you've got your big amp sound that really should be blasting out, but somehow is it just the, how you're mixing it and using compression or is it in the room? So do you think in terms of like, I'm playing loud rock and roll, but none of it's actually loud. That's the impression I'm getting here.
2: Yeah. There are a lot of different reasons why the record sounds the way it does. Uh- This particular room where we recorded has a lot of characteristics that we kind of wanted. That's why we decided to work here. But it's also the way it's mixed. We spent a lot of time uh, trying different paintings and uh, the arrangements. We wanted to make sure parts didn't kind of overlap. Everything had its own unique space and didn't compete too much with each other. And I guess what you said was... um, The juxtaposition of the acoustic and the electric that almost the impetus for the song right from the start, I guess. Probably I started on acoustic, but heard it on electric and liked it both ways. So combined them together.
0: Yeah. There's a lot more hard panning on this album that I, than I would normally expect, which is nice. You know, well, I was going to say it's good enough for the Beatles, but no, that's like people after the fact that, that mix the Beatles records in a strange stereo way.
2: Well, I think a lot of it, too, is a reaction to the way records are made nowadays. They're so, uh, I guess, geared for the radio or for people driving, or I'm not sure what, but it's like heavily compressed, Mm -hmm. very uh, almost mono. It's just uh, the dynamic range is very narrow in its scope, and we wanted to kind of do the opposite of that.
0: Just even something like normally when you mix a drum set, I do this. You have stereo overheads and and you wave the toms around as if you were sitting, wearing headphones, you're actually sitting at the drum kit, which is never what you actually hear when you're live. You're not sitting at the drum kit unless you're the drummer. So it kind of makes more sense, and especially since you guys have the drummer and the percussionist, that you would put the whole kit kind of off to one side and then put the sleigh bells off the other side we don't have so much of that here
2: that was uh, a very conscious decision right before we even started that we would go with the mono mix of the drums i guess uh, bill had referenced a motown song that he heard and when i do my home recordings on my equipment which we didn't do this time we brought equipment in but when i work on my own I don't have enough tracks to go stereo anyway, but that's sort of my preference, I think, when I was saying about everything having its unique space and things don't overlap. So having the mono drums definitely adds to that uh, equation.
0: But you still have like a separate kick mic, right? You're not just like putting a mic in front of the kit for that? Well,
2: everything was mic separate, but Uh when we mixed and panned the instruments, they were all together, but it was all recorded each... uh, dramas recorded separate. We recorded basically the way you normally would record, but it was uh, the approach to the mixing, I guess, that was kind of unique. I guess i had also
0: read that you had insisted from the beginning that you want to do the production yourself, right, from the first album, that you at least had to, maybe you could have a co-producer if they made you, but...
2: Yeah, yeah, that's something that's real important to us. We did our first session with a producer early on for the uh, Ork Records label. He said, we'll take a break. You guys go out to dinner. When you come back, I'll have a rough mix ready. And we came back, and it was just so foreign to what I had imagined the way it was going to sound that we kind of decided right then and there that, no, we really need, uh, since we do have definite ideas and we know what we want we really we need to be in control of this and do the production ourselves it goes along with everything you know you write the song you arrange it and record it there's no reason to bring someone in to impart their taste or whatever on it
0: well i guess unless you don't care about the technical aspects unless you're just we are interested in being a tight band and then please take the rest off our hands there are plenty of folks i've talked to that are just not that interested in the recording process they don't have that strong taste and so let them do what they want to package it
2: We were always, right from the beginning, really uh, interested in recording, and just speaking for myself, that's where I feel most comfortable, and my favorite part is making records.
0: So is the point, though, to capture the energy of the live group performance, you know, warts and all? No, because
2: you're just like chasing after something you'll never achieve. It's just something about a live show... It's different every night, sounds different every night, every song's different. There's no way you could ever capture on a record what it's like to be at the show. So it's like, why even bother?
0: Well, I guess I meant more the live in the room. I raise this in particular because like the intro to this song, it's interesting when the drums come in, they're kind of out of time for like the first three beats and then they lock in. And I actually really like that because when they do lock in, it's kind of, oh, like it's very satisfying. But that's, you know, the normal kind of thing that if you're doing with a producer, they would not let you do that. They like, okay we kind of screwed up the intro there. Let's do that again. But it seemed like this was a conscious decision that the performance, the integrity of the performance as a whole, that natural moment was something to preserve rather than to digitally fix or or punch in or, or do a different take.
2: Yeah, I agree. What's really missing from records nowadays, I think, is that element of
0: imperfection. Rock
2: and roll is always about things kind of rubbing up against each other and that creating tension and release, and it's all what gives it the excitement when you're listening.
0: Let's get the second song on the board here, also from the current album. It's actually just the song right after it on the record, Gone, Gone, Gone. A little more intense. Can you say a little about how this one came together? I don't recall
2: anything unusual about it. it just kind of came together. Was this a co-write? Let me ask that.
0: Yeah. Okay. So in that case, does that mean, how does the co-writing actually work with the two of you? Are you sitting together with guitars? No, Bill sent... um, Over the mail.
2: (laughs) Bill, Bill sent a CD of a whole bunch of ideas. I think there are about a dozen. And I'll just put that on and listen, and certain songs will immediately bring to mind. Usually it's either a melody or a guitar part, or just whatever kind of sparks my creative flow the quickest is what I'll gravitate toward. I narrowed it down, transferred that to my recorder. What he said was basically just, well, it was actually just his guitar. So for me to make it more of a song by adding the vocals and my guitar, I found it helpful to put a drum track down. So that would be the first thing I'd do. And then I'd start usually doing guitar stuff. And usually the vocals would come last. And I wound up pretty much putting everything on bass and percussion Only in that it helped me when I'm doing the vocals because the more fully realized the song sounds, the easier it is to hear like the finished version, which is how I approach the vocals, like where that fits in. It just makes it easy for me the more the song is complete to finish it with the
0: vocal. All right, so even this percussion stuff near the end, that was kind of part of your initial demo in terms of...
2: On that particular song, I'm not sure exactly what was on the demo, but that one we did come up with a lot of percussion stuff later on for the end because we kind of extended it. That one we didn't stick as close to the demo. In some cases, we actually used the demo, but in that one, everything was redone, re-recorded. All right.
1: you. Yeah.
0: So we have, again, just like uh, the first tune, you've got some, in this case, it's scrapey string sounds before the main guitar comes in. I like that you know, a lot of the songs on this album, they really set an atmosphere, that you have this static that goes between ears and at the beginning have been replaced. It's, okay, we're setting up that this is about the radio, although I thought it was just guitar amp hum when I initially heard that. We felt that kind of stuff was
2: real important, kind of setting up the mood for the song and uh the first version of the intro actually sounded more like static. So I went back and uh, found a section that was a little more closely related to the sound of the radio. So it's little details and a lot of attention to the small stuff, but it we kind of feel it adds up to the final finished product.
0: So you were saying that you added the lead guitar lines and the vocals kind of in the same pass. or do you, Do you see those pretty much as just two parts of the melody. It's not like, now I'm opening up and jamming on guitar. No, you're just playing a melody on guitar, it seems, I mean you do most of your solos.
2: On this record, there's probably a little bit less improvising, maybe. Usually it's about half and half. Half are written ahead of time and half are improvised. But I think on this one, a little bit more
0: were uh, written ahead of time. Like improvised in the context of the whole band performing at the same time, so that if you, or improvised after the fact.
2: After the fact, although on Time for Witness, we did use some of the solos that were done on the basic track when the whole band was playing live. But for the most part, a lot of my guitar gets overdubbed, especially the leads.
0: So you've got a nice separated sound where everybody is wearing. The whole band is wearing headphones, so everything is still not bleeding onto the drum track, and you can swap out things.
2: For this record, that was one of our concerns. It's a small room. It's not soundproofed. Bill wanted to approach his guitar recording the same way he did at home, which was this particular technique. I first heard about it when reading about the uh, recording of Peggy Sue, Norman Petty, Put a mic on the guitar as well as the amp, and he mixed that in. When Bill recorded at home, I think he used one mic positioned between the amp and the guitar. So that created a really unique guitar sound, and we wanted to try to recapture that. So he was in a different room. My guitar, a lot of it we didn't really wind up using anyway, but it wasn't really separate, but it didn't leak into the room. The bass was direct. So basically, The only sound within the room was the drums. It turned out that Bill's guitar mic picked up too much of the drums, so we couldn't actually use a lot of the uh, mic guitar, which was our original intention. So in those cases, we went back and took the uh, guitar from the demo.
0: Which in this case was electric, right? This is gone, gone, gone. So he's not in a room with an acoustic with a mic on it, and then the drums 20 feet away, not...
2: Well, his guitar uh, wasn't an acoustic. It captures an acoustic quality. He's got an electric acoustic guitar, so the amp has the pickup and the mic is picking up the uh, guitar, but it doesn't project nearly as much as an acoustic guitar would. So it's not an acoustic guitar sound, but it's close, I guess. Some people might perceive it as an acoustic.
0: I've done that with playing with loud drums in a room, using a direct from my classical acoustic as well. So it works okay. I, I never like the sound as much just putting a mic on it, or at least being able to mix that mic sound into the pickup sound. But if you want to do the live thing, that's kind of the compromise you have to make.
2: You could always uh, take that direct guitar and feed it through some speaker and record the ambience to add that to the room sound to the mix.
0: Ah, I know in the same kind of setup, like if we do have a guitar amp, it's often... Can we put it basically like in the closet so that it is in its own space, it's separate from the drums, but you can still run a cord to it? Or are you using a direct inject fake amp or something? <laughs> Tell me again how you were recording the, the electric here live with the drums. Does the amp was in another room? How is that actually physically set up?
2: We had Bill's amp, yeah, in a separate room. Okay. And he was in, like, Brenda and Stan and myself were in the big room, the main room. Bill was in one room, and then his amp was in the third room.
0: Okay, so he can't actually see you. That's right. Okay. So the percussion is one of the most fun things, you know, consistently about your bands. And I know even in the first album, when you only, in the official lineup, only had Anton playing drums there, there's always these claves or jingle bells or something going on. But the fact that they're restrained, that in this song, you don't really hear them until this end part where you've had the bridge and you're going to, uh, it's just basically in the outro. How choreographed is this kind of thing? How do you figure out, so the percussionist doesn't just does play all over everything?
2: The parts are written the same way you'd write a guitar part or a background vocal or, or any part, really. Um, I guess the main thing early on, we didn't really like our original drummer used a lot of symbols and we found that they interfered with a lot of the tones on the guitar, so we suggested he use less cymbals that opened up a lot of space. We thought we could fill up that space with percussion. And then, you know, we don't like a lot of fills, typical drum fills and stuff, so percussion will take that place of those a lot of times. Used various ways, I guess, uh, texture, and sometimes just to add more energy to move something along a little bit. You go to chorus and have a maraca come in and picks it up slightly. So it's to expand the dynamic range a little bit. add different texture and different tones and might want a little high-end if the snare is a little dark-sounding, a tambourine playing along, you know, adds a little high-end to that. You know, it really varies uh, from part to part and song to song.
0: Sure. The structurally interesting thing about this one is that, I mean, it sounds like the gone, gone, gone part is the chorus. I mean, it's a pretty quick chorus and it turns back to the verse pretty quick. But then you hit this, what's the bridge, where you do this thing that, could be the chorus in another song. This da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Like, this is the happy part, and it only happens three times, and then you're back to... That seems like a fairly typical thing, like that if you're... good, It makes it more powerful when you whip out the happy little bit if it happens just like this, rather than, uh, you know, that's the chorus, and we play it three times, and it's long.
2: It's not something that's really conceptualized. It's just spontaneous. A lot of it. You um, can't explain really uh, the process too much, and wouldn't want to. Uh, even if you could, you know, there's a certain uh, mystery involved. I don't even understand it. You know, where songs yeah. come from, where where ideas come from. It's just.
0: It clearly comes. I think again, one of you in that other interview had said that you're you know you're more likely to remove a chorus than add a chorus. That it's just part of the taste. That there's something just like this thing you're complaining about at the radio. Well, you know, what would one complain about? It's so, I don't know if crass is the word, but, you know, it's manipulative. It's like a commercial. Whereas if you're a little more ginger with the choruses like this, then uh, I don't know if it what the effect is. It's not like it's more authentic or something, but it's just, it's uh, less cheesy.
2: Or less of a cliche. I guess if you hear something often, then it's just, yeah, like you said, a lot of times it's more about what you leave out than what you put in.
0: We're going to stop. This is a new 2023 ad for Factor Meals. With the busy fall season already in swing, you might be looking for wholesome, convenient meals for jam-packed days. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, can help you fuel up fast with chef-prepared, dietitian-approved, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle. I have scarfed down several of these recently, and they're all quite good. You know the meal kit thing. Well, this is one better because you don't have to actually combine the ingredients. You just heat it up in the oven if you're patient, in the microwave if you're not. Factors fresh, never frozen meals already in just two minutes. And it's a great way if you're too busy to cook to make sure you're eating well. These are upscale meals with premium ingredients like broccolini, leeks, truffle butter, asparagus. They've got at least 34 weekly options. I am looking at a bunch of empty boxes of what they sent to me like roasted veggie and pesto tortellini, creamy parmesan chicken. Vegan mushroom marsala, jalapeno lime cheddar chicken with spicy cilantro, cauliflower, quote unquote rice. They're all pretty low calorie. And you can, in fact, specify, hey, I want the calorie conscious options with around 550 or less calories
1: per serving. Or you could do the protein plus meals with 30 grams of protein or more per serving. They've got special lunch to go options, grain bowls, salad toppers.
0: They have snacks breakfast items, juices, shakes, and smoothies. So get Factor and enjoy eating well without the hassle. You simply choose your meals and enjoy fresh, flavor-packed meals delivered to your door, ready in two minutes, no prep, no mess. Head to factormeals.com slash NEM50 and use code NEM50 to get 50% off. That's code NEM50 at factormeals.com slash NEM50 to get 50% off. Speaking of things that are not cliche song structures, let's bring in our third song. I picked one of the ones from Incidental Home, your 2015 solo album. Uh, I like this one, Laramie, which struck me as, as the most, I don't know, like one of those Brian Eno ambient tracks, you know, just this uh, or Frippertronics. I well, there's this drone use of Ebo, of the electronic bow. When did you get into that? It really opens up a whole new soundscape.
2: I've been using an Ebo since they invented it, the idea of that endless sustain on the guitar is uh, really appealing, so I always gravitated toward that. I actually tried out early on, there was a product called the Gizmotron. I think they recently relaunched it. Ah. it tiny wheels that rotated and vibrated, just pushed up against the s- strings. It didn't work out too well. It wasn't really, um, I think they rushed to production. Didn't work out all the bugs on it, but yeah. As soon as I found out about Evo, I got one and really been using it ever since.
0: So, do you want to say any more about how the tracks on Incidental Hum were put together? Were these you know pretty spontaneous studio experiments, like with Laramie in particular? In
2: particular, there's not really that much to say about that song. There's a lot to say about the record. Probably just take up a half an hour just talking about how it came about and the different things that went into it and.
0: Well, let's play the song and then then you can tell us more about the record.
2: Since I have a studio here and I'm able to record, and it's my favorite thing to do, I record all the time. When I don't have a song to demo, I'll often record cover song, a song that I always liked, uh, inspired me when I was younger, and starting to play, and just done various things. And I didn't have new songs, but I really had the urge to record. So I thought, well, that really shouldn't stop me. I could just go down and improvise and start with nothing and see where that takes me. And also, I guess simultaneous to that was reflecting back on a period early on in the Feelies and just before the Feelies of listening to and being inspired by groups like Eno and Kraftwerk and Philip Glass. Things that had a lot more keyboard and David Bowie's Low album was was real big inspiration. So it was yeah. the idea of to kind of explore that a little bit. So the first experiment went well and that got the ball rolling and I did a few more. And then I realized early on that when I listened back to the songs, they would invoke a certain visual image in my mind. And I thought these are kind of like soundtracks to a movie that is, you know, in my mind or whatever. And then from there, I had the idea, well, what if I start with the image and score it like actually like it would be a film where I think of a particular place and then write accordingly. So then I did that on some of the songs as well. And then the third thing that happened was I found some old cassettes that had some instrumental stuff that I had done maybe 10 years before and kind of forgot about. So I transferred those as well and did some work on that. And little by little, it just uh, kind of evolved into like a whole instrumental record and didn't even think of it as a record. It was just a bunch of instrumental stuff. And I gave a copy to our manager and he got real excited about it and he encouraged me to put it out. So
0: yeah, it does often seem like the kind of thing, this is not sort of logically if you're going to, do the thing that your audience most wants you to do, (laughs) this would not be the thing that would come to mind. But it's just so it starts as something that's personal. And, you know, you put enough of your heart into it, then you find like, wow, okay, people actually like it just as much as anything else I've done.
2: The Willys actually started out very similar circumstance where uh, Bill and I would just, it was right after we first got our four track recorder, and we would just totally improvised. We'd get together almost every day, really, and, and just make these very soundtracky kind of tapes. A lot of it was by changing tape speeds and manipulating sounds, and being really experimental. So uh, I think it was kind of inspired by that
0: as well. And just to talk a little bit about this specific tune, I mean, you got the, just the fact that you saved the drums until the very end, and that is an actual drum kit, right? I mean, the kick drum sounds almost like it has too much pitch to be a regular kick drum, is that?
2: Oh, boy, I don't even remember. Uh, <laughs> okay. A lot of the drums that sound like drum machine are real drums, and some of the ones that sound real are drum machine, and a lot of them are a combination of the two. When I play drums, I kind of take the Mo Tucker approach, which is uh, with mallets, and I don't use the kick drum. I use a tom-tom for the kick drum part Hmm. so it's probably uh, tom tom
0: yes that's definitely what i'm what i'm hearing so is that to save you the trouble of having to train your ankle or is there some other i
2: played drum kit a little bit but um i guess you know i'm more used to my arms being a guitarist
0: yeah no it's such a different skill
2: yeah it's not having the time to spend the time to get proficient enough to work the kick drum with my foot
0: and the soundscape that is before that comes in, you know, a lot of it is eBo. There's some keyboards. What? There's kind of a high rhythmic instrument that establishes the rhythm before the sleigh bells come come in. Is that just a guitar played high? It almost sounds like an auto harp.
2: This stuff was recorded such a long time ago. <laughs> okay. I guess the whole idea was to try to manipulate the uh, tones and the sounds to uh, just create something you n- might not normally
0: hear. So it probably is a guitar. It's just. EQ'd in some strange way. I know, like Lindsey Buckingham from Fleetwood Mac. Some of his little guitar parts—they sound like they could be keyboard, or they could be auto harp or some strange harpsichord.
2: (laughs) Who knows? Like I said about some of the real drums sounding like a drum machine. It's a lot of the keyboards sound like guitar, and the guitars sound like keyboards, and a lot of them are mixed together on the same
0: part. But all of it was actually played, not programmed, right? Yeah, right. It seemed, particularly with this one, that you don't, I mean, yeah, you have a constant rhythm. Would you even bother to use a click track for this kind of thing? Or would you just, okay, we just are going?
2: Uh, Typically, I I record with not really a click track. I'll pick, like, some drum pattern. Hmm. I have a bunch of different drum machines and... I'll pick something sort of in the realm of what I'm looking at rhythmically and then start recording stuff and then typically by the end that's gone or it's been mutated so much that it doesn't resemble in any way the original
0: track. Sure, yeah, I've had so many recordings where if you listen closely, you can hear the metronome that was in my headphones that has bled on to at least the intro of the track that a number of times I've just, you know, record the metronome or whatever it is as its own track and then maybe some of that stays. Maybe if you put enough delay on it, who knows? Probably it'll be gone, but...
2: Well, yeah, that's the excitement and the beauty of recording that. It's so uh, adaptable and open to experimenting, and you can go any which way, and there aren't any rules, and, you know, it's like a uh, laboratory or something. You just go down and experiment. That's the fun of it.
0: Do you remember with this one, sort of what was the skeleton in terms of the, the chords? Was it... I've got this drum pattern going and I'm going to play just a simple back and forth between a couple chords. And that's going to be, you know, and then improvise on that a little bit. And that's at least going to provide a foundation. Or was it more, I'm just going to sustain some Ebo notes, you know, do some kind of more straight up atmospheric stuff. And that was the beginning of the song. Do you recall with this one? I don't recall, but I don't think
2: I ever started with too abstract of a part. It would Typically, be something that would include the core changes. And if there is no core change, then it would uh, usually be one of the main things, I think. Um, sure. You know, each one is different. Some songs I kind of more clearly remember the writing process, but that one really uh, don't have a lot of memories for.
0: It's not quite like the ambient. Not that I know how the Brian Eno ambient albums were written, but, you know, since a lot of it is you know, a sustained synth note that goes for a long time and then <laughs> shifts to another thing. You know, it really is the atmospheric stuff is the the bread and butter of it, but it sounds like you're a little more song oriented in your bones. So you're at least going to start with some rhythm and some chord changes, even if it doesn't become an actual whole song per se.
2: Yeah. There was one song I remember thinking, well, this is pretty good. Maybe I could put some words on it and we could do it with the feelies. And then I realized, well, I do that I'm kind of ruining what it is I like about the song anyway so I'll just leave it as the instrumental.
0: Yeah I think I noticed that with Cheyenne the second or third track it, which actually sounds a little like the Like Yesterday song which is one of the Wake Ulu ones that I also was uh, we're not going to talk about but I had prepped it up so we could if we weren't eating enough time but we're we're fine you know so it starts like it could be one of your band songs but then because you don't do that, because you don't add the vocals, then you can take it in a different direction. Then you can add like an interesting little synth lead part. You know, I hear some of this has bled onto the the new solo album, but I would also be equally unsurprised if, you know, on the new band album, I did hear more, okay, now that I've explored this, like, how can I synthesize the technique that I developed on incidental hum with the band? And so just have longer, like, instrumental sections or textural sections, it seems like you're still being pretty sparse about that. It still has to sound like the feelies.
2: I think it did have some impact doing the instrumental record. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to say. I think the main influence it had was the approach to experimenting more with the idea being we don't necessarily have to perform these songs. And in particular, the song In Between, that was the last song I wrote. Hmm. And that was written with sort of a concept in mind, which is something that's unusual for a Feely song to be written conceptually. They're all totally spontaneous with a guitar, just strumming some chords, and you get some chord pattern that you find interesting, and then become eventually becomes a song. But this was sort of having the idea beforehand, and then it's a different approach. The idea was, well, I liked On Crazy Rhythms where the middle section of that song and the song Forces of Work where they just kind of hang on the one chord and things are going on with that. And another thing I was thinking of was I really like the Who's Next record with Baba O'Reilly and Won't Get Fooled Again with the synthesizer. So I thought, well, it'd be nice to do like one chord where I have this kind of throbbing, pulsing loop going on. I didn't have a looper, so I actually did it in real time. I started with a tremolo, and then I added guitar and piano to that. And then having that simulated loop allowed me to kind of improvise chords and then write the song around it. So that was the one instance where the idea came prior to the song.
0: Well, yeah, as soon as I said that they're not too many giant instrumental sections, I remembered the, you've got the in-between reprise, that's a nine minute, and then some.
2: When I made the simulated loop, I made it on a cassette, and I just did it as long as the cassette lasted, and it turned out to be like eight minutes long. So when I was writing the song, about halfway through, just started kind of jamming, and it went somewhere else. So I guess from there, when I was doing the mix, I took the loop out. Listen to it with just a vocal and a guitar, I thought, well, this this is equally interesting. I could do a completely different version with just acoustic guitar and vocals, and then I copied it and kind of just used that and then added percussion to that, and that became the acoustic version.
0: You've got some places in your catalog, these longer songs that I sort of see in the model of the... Velvet Underground's when they would do extended jams, you know, as opposed to one of these songs from Incidental Home, which could be quite long if you just kept going with the experimentation and the and the textures and stuff. It seems a, a fundamentally different process between these putting something together, you know, even if it's not, you know, you're writing a symphony, it's not that kind of long because it has to say everything musically It's got to say it the interesting
2: thing was the demo like i said was eight minutes long with the jam so we knew we we wanted to take it in that direction but i wanted it to be like really kind of fresh so obviously when we rehearsed it we didn't really want to every time rehearse it with a jam so we rehearsed it as the acoustic version and i don't think we ever played it as the electric version no as a matter of fact i know we didn't until uh, just before we were going to record it, I kind of showed Bill the electric part literally like minutes before, and we took the cassette tape, transferred that, and then we just went for it. That jam on the end was very spontaneous, and it's also totally live, and it's first time we've ever jammed on a record. I mean, we used to jam a lot at rehearsal, but we don't really do that now because we don't have enough time.
0: So I guess that's just to return us to the first point, the point that might have come from Dave of the analogy of, you know, we all just get together and we do this stuff as opposed to the model, which is more what I'm hearing from you. You know, the typical songwriter model that it's not just like I do this a couple times a week when I get together with friends. It's no, I'm a songwriter and I'm, this is the thing I most love to do. And I will do it at three in the morning and I will do it whenever it can come together There's a lot to be said about having leisurely rehearsals as opposed to when bands are more professional. Especially if somebody's traveling to get there, if you don't even live in the same city, then your time is so limited in a way that it sounds like you know when you and Bill were developing the Willies or something. That the effect is is you have time to kill that you really can explore something, you know, develop a style in a way that is maybe you don't have to do at this point because you guys are so used to each other and you're you know developing ideas on your own in the interim. I'm
2: not sure what the question is whether we be. More experimental. If we had more time, uh, I I don't know. I think that's a, kind of a struggle we always kind of have to deal with. I guess your limited time and and how you are going to spend that time. And
0: it seems like a significant difference between bands that are just starting. You know, when you're young and you can just be out at night for as long as you want, and probably come back the next day and maybe are are so dedicated to your music and that you can just do it with this kind of leisure time. I know some. Very big bands like, you know, hearing about REM recording their last bunch of albums, like they've got enough budget. They could even just do that and be that leisurely in a super high cost studio. But for the most part, when bands mature, they no longer, you know, for various logistical reasons, even just having kids and having lives and things that you don't get that we can jam for (laughs) forever until something good comes out.
2: Yeah, that was primarily the reason we decided to record here, that we could do what we wanted and if it didn't come out we didn't have to use it and we didn't have a deadline and uh you know it was all kind of an experiment really.
0: Okay, so you really do still have a lot of that even though Bill is coming in remotely that you can doing the home studio thing gives you a lot of that. Well, advantage. I
2: think we we're kind of hoping to move in that direction, I think that's mm-hmm. something we had uh, at the back of our minds.
0: So one song we're going to move toward our closing song which is uh, Should Be Gone from the previous album here before 2011, one of the catchier numbers like the more recent Feelies tunes. I know after the first album at least you kind of dialed your vocals back in the mix and you know just like the tone of that whenever i hear you know whether it's this or Husker Du or anything where the vocals are kind of back i wonder what is the proper listening volume (laughs) that is my tendency is to at least try to like turn up the whole thing so that the vocals would be where they would be the volume of a normally mixed song, (laughs) which means the rest of it is really freaking loud. Do you think of it that way? Or is that just they're actually meant to be really
2: quiet? I think they're really different on every record. Sure. The place, and it's not always a volume thing one thing that i like to do when i record my stuff is kind of leave the center of the stereo spectrum just for the vocal on this record and the stuff that i do i put the bass just off look at it like the panning is like a clock it would be just off the 12 o'clock mark and the drums the opposite just slightly so you don't even really perceive it that way but it uh, allows for the vocal to be heard without bringing it up in volume the idea is that we don't want the vocal to be separate from the music a lot of times i'll hear a mix I'll listen to a record and it just sound like the band with and then the vocals like on top of it and it's not part of the music so we really uh have always gone the opposite of that approach wanted to have it more uh integrated into the music
0: yeah, well, you're making me rethink this approach in favor of that direction. I, my father, who's 86 or something now, was a folk singer in like the early 60s, and so whenever I would play him anything, you know, for my whole formative years, it would always be, I can't understand the words. Make the vocal loud enough because that that was the aesthetic as of the early 60s. Like that, everything else is backing. So I still that kind of I internalized that a lot, and I do I. No matter how poor my lead vocal is, I feel like it it has to be sitting up there as a thing that is speaking directly to you and that you don't have to work to hear what is being said. I was surprised when I went to listen to the recent songs here and was trying to just Write down what the lyrics were just by listening to it. I had actually very little trouble at all. That it, because of this mixing thing you're talking about, or the way you're EQing it, or something. Yeah, everything comes out nicely, even though you're not. You know, you can hear on the first record it has more of a I don't know. Sometimes it sounded like Jonathan Richman or the Buzz Cox or the guy from Joy Division, like these vocal personas that was sort of more upfront and I want to say punk. I know that's not what you were shooting for, but that by your second album, by everything since then, it's just. It's it's, it's nice and smooth and part of the layering. Oh, thanks.
2: Uh, I mean, I've heard people say they think the vocals on Crazy Rhythms are too soft.
0: So They could use compression. <laughs>
2: and I heard like, uh, about the last record, some people said their vocals were too loud. Some said they were too soft. So we just kind of put them
0: where we think they suit the song the best. All right. Well, I've had this uh, Should Be Gone song going constantly in my head. This is one of the... <laughs> The catchier ones. I'm glad to share this with the folks. Uh, Any sort of closing comments in terms of where you guys were at with this previous record here before as compared to what we've been talking about so far?
2: The last record was, there was a lot of excitement and enthusiasm on the part of the band because we had just reunited and a lot of stuff going on. In some ways, they're no different. In some ways, they're different. I mean, depends what you're looking for. (laughs)
0: Sure. Any thoughts about this song in particular? Was this the single or one of? Are you even thinking those terms at this point?
2: No, I don't remember anybody focusing on that particular track. All
0: right, I thought it came out real well. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, good. Yeah.
1: Wonderful, wonderful talking
0: to Glenn Mercer. You know, the females were one of these bands that I had always heard about. They were worshipped by some people. I'd probably just listened to a little of the first album, which is the most well-known. Crazy Rhythms, he mentioned, which is more punk, even though they were avowedly trying not to be punk. That one's quite different than the others, right? It's six years between Crazy Rhythms and the second album, The Good Earth. And that first album had, most notably, Anton Fear on the drums. You can look him up. He did a lot of stuff subsequent to that. Very interesting, hyperactive drummer. And also on that, as I mentioned, Glenn had not really worked out his vocal style. And I think there's also more vocals by Bill Millian, his co-writer. I think having this kind of co-writing relationship is great. The thing that makes it harder for me to produce song after song after song is really, I get sick of my own rhythm guitar style. So if you have somebody
1: else that, at least for many of the songs, is just coming up with chord progressions, just coming up with their own guitar riffs, That then you can make into a song, you can layer your vocals on, you can come up
0: with the melody, you can come up with the, well, in Glenn's case, the lead guitar parts. It just seems a really good formula,
1: Well, you as a lead vocalist maybe still retain control of the overall song structure and, you know, what makes it an actual song, but don't have to supply all that raw material yourself.
0: So again, there was that six-year gap between the first and the second album. He mentioned the band The Willies, which was him and Bill and some of the same people. That was sort of an interim project, and there were... Some other things like that, there's a whole separate project, Young Woo, that was basically the same people, but with Dave Weckerman, the percussionist, singing lead on everything, so it was just an outlet for his music. So I mentioned the interesting dual drummer setup, Stan Domeski being the kit player, for the most part, and Dave Weckerman being the guy who holds the maracas or tambourine or whatever, really contributes to their unique sound. And then it was Stan, the drummer, who persisted through the 90s band wake ulu which was really just because bill
1: had moved to florida so the feelies such as they were could be no more but i definitely recommend checking those albums out given that they came out in 94 95 96 they have more of that 90s grunge thing in them the vocals higher in the mix a little more traditional recording
0: i heard comparisons to tom petty anyway pretty much anything glenn has touched is pretty damn interesting
1: if you enjoyed this interview please go subscribe to the podcast. Look us up on iTunes or go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. We have a Facebook page. You can follow us that way.
0: And hey, it's Mark in 2023 again. I want to encourage folks who enjoy this podcast to go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic and make a very small per-episode
1: pledge. Note that it is by episodes. If I don't put out a new episode, folks don't get charged. Folks at Patreon have not gotten charged for this reissue.
0: So why this reissue now? Well, Howard Wolfing a figure in the 80s punk scene in his own right with the nurses who now books pretty much any of my guests that are from the Northeast and or who are connected somehow with this golden moment of the late 70s, early 80s punk scene. Howard is promoting the new Feelies album, Some Kind of Love and proposed that I do a Feelys interview. Well, I'd already had this one with Glenn. Perhaps later I will talk to his co-writer Bill Millian or Brenda Sauter, the bass player who has her own project. But given that the new album is all cover tunes, it's maybe not the optimal one for this podcast. But I do want to give you folks who finally got to listen to this interview or re-listen to it, as the case may be, a taste of the new album. The Velvet Underground are, of course, a big influence on, well, everyone, at least in the aforementioned punk scene, and certainly on the feelies. And Glenn's voice sure sounds a heck of a lot like Lou Reed's from this era, or at least he does a good impression. I don't know. The Some Kind of Love album is 18 Velvet Underground songs all performed live at a sold-out New Jersey concert in October 2018. Why are they releasing it now as a new album? Couldn't tell you. But it sure is good. So take a look for it on Bandcamp or the streaming services or thefeelysweb.com. Now, among the Velvet Underground output, I am partial to the ones that are not so much two-chord classic rock and roll monsters, but are the tuneful ones, the ones that are a little retro for their time period. And so I picked the second track off the album, Who Loves the Sun? Thanks for listening. Here are Feelies.